This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Penwood's Equine. The folks at Penwood's Equine are excited for you to hear about their new foot quality product, Essential Rescue. When you've exhausted all other biotin or foot quality products, this will be your go-to because it gets results in an incredibly short amount of time. Maybe you have multiple horses and everything you're doing seems to be working for them, except that one horse. No matter what you try, nothing seems to help that horse. We've all been there. Well, Essential Rescue is a product that you can add to whatever you're already feeding to achieve great hoof quality results. Through our own research and reports from our customers with their own horses, Essential Rescue can help deliver significant improvements in just one shoeing cycle. And for a limited time, Penwoods is offering free shipping on Essential Rescue when you buy from Penwoods.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Just like in every other facet of life, the horse world is being influenced by COVID-19. Through this, there's an effect on the farrier industry as well. That impact differs as greatly as the farrier industry does. Our audience surveys have shown that some farriers are seeing an impact of drawn out trimming or shoeing cycles in canceled horse shows. Other farriers haven't seen any change or are in fact seeing more business as clients are still training or spending more time with their horses. For those who are having a difficult time managing their businesses, we're offering this series to deliver practical business advice from an assortment of farriers at different points in their careers. Some of this will be related to current COVID measures, but in general, it's about better management of your practices. Even if you aren't affected by this pandemic, I'm sure you'll find good business advice within it. In this episode, we talk with farrier Dave Farley. And although we don't necessarily discuss COVID-19 specifically, I think a lot of these good business approaches are what helps insulate your practice during difficult times like what some farriers are experiencing with COVID-19. Dave has been a friend for many years, Dave Farley, and he's uh, not only a friend but an exceptional farrier and uh, one of the best minds for business and practical advice. And I think whatever your interest is, it doesn't necessarily have to be something related to how COVID-19 is affecting your business, uh, but really operating your business in general. And I think what's nice about having Dave and everyone has their different perspectives on business and the way they're running their business of of the people we're having on for these Q&As is Dave has had a very long career. So we can see some advice from him on his current multi-farrier practice uh, that, that's remote, but also how Dave started out and uh, I think struggled as many of you probably are in thinking about how can you raise the profile of your business. So welcome, Dave. Thank you, Jeremy, and thank you for doing these things here for the farriers at home. It's a struggle right now. The times are tough and I appreciate what you're doing for the farriers. Absolutely. Uh, let's start with this one, Dave. And it's uh, cash flow. One of the big problems I think farriers are going to experience are clients not paying promptly. What what suggestion do you have to, I guess, first prevent 
clients from finding a way not to pay you, but also following up on clients to get paid? Well, if one establishes their business and has some terms, it makes it much easier in times like this. No matter who your clients are, where you live geographically, what type of horses you shoe, it's, it's just imperative that you have some type of terms. In my business, I have terms, uh, and they're very set terms. Although times like this, they, they get tough. So in my own business, we have a few people that are, that are not on the, the circuit right now. There's no horse shows. Things are a bit tough for them right now. And they've actually asked all my clients to pay with credit card, but they've asked if they could uh, can pay a certain amount every month until this they can get through this because they, they live on a on a restricted cash flow also. And I think for the farriers at home that uh, that that have a business and depend on their cash flow every day, it's it's time to look at it and uh, and be a little bit more professional about the business and set it up to run as a business rather than on the cuff. It's hard if you're on the cuff and you, you think it's coming in every day, every day, and then you get something like this happens and you're a week, two weeks without that cash flow. Now's the time to take a hard look at it. It, it is a crisis. This pandemic has, has caused a lot of issues with the equine industry and all the disciplines. So because of this, it's time to look at it and get to be familiar with your clients. It's time to call them. Uh, I, I really don't think you should rely on texting and emails at this point. Uh, if there's already an issue and they're a little late on their money, it's time to call them and say, hey, I'm here to help you. We need to work this out. I understand you're in a tough position, but I also need my income also. So how can we work this out? I think communication is the best thing that a farrier can do right now to uh, establish some terms with the customers and a plan, a payment plan. So in terms of a payment plan, how, how do you address that? Uh, let's say they're on a, like a five to six week schedule. Do you want to be paid in full on that plan for your previous shoeing before you do the next job or do you do it on a case by case basis? Yeah. You know, each farrier has their business set up differently. And, and I, I personally, I, I'm paid the day that I'm there. I'm, I'm, my business runs strictly on credit card. And if we don't have credit card information that day, we, uh, we will not do the horses. That, that's tough. I know it's hard for the, the guy at home to do that, but it's, it solved all of my cash flow problems when that happened. So if you're not doing that, there has to be terms. You know, you have to let them know a check has to be there or cash if you're fortunate enough to get cash. Or as I said, you know, if, if, if it's tough for them, everybody has a credit card. Everybody has credit cards. So say, uh, if you can't pay it all, can we have at least 60, 70, 80% of it paid before I come next time? And then we can adjust it at that time. There has to be some payment received. Otherwise, we're working for free. You know, something we've written about with Dave several times, and I, I, I like this approach that you have, Dave, is you lay out terms and, and procedures with your clients and communications and newsletters. Can you talk about your newsletter process a little bit? The newsletter is one of the simplest, easiest things to do. Uh, you can use it not only to set terms, but educate the clients. And that's, that's what it's all about anyways, is the educating the clients. When you decide to put together a newsletter, it can be very, very simple. It's something maybe we should have uh, as a roundtable sometime. Or uh, You simply write down what is important in your business 
Uh, obviously, cash flow is the most important. Some people will say, uh, I don't want to get a horse out of the stall. Somebody has to be there, or I don't get horses out of the field, or I don't do horses with muddy legs. Whatever that is, write your list down before you start your newsletter. But start your newsletter by saying, thank you very much for being a client. I really appreciate your business, but I, I have a few things I would like for you to consider. And then go in the details of that and ask, always ask the client, is there anything that I can do to help our relationship? Uh, there's a lot of problems with farriers with either foul language or they don't clean up after themselves or they have a bad attitude. You'll be surprised what the clients will tell you. So if you're going to consider a newsletter, and I really suggest everybody do that at least one a year, if not two, consider what you would like to have in your terms, but also ask the client what they would like to, for you to do. Okay. And I think we can get into some of those elements and some other business practices. Uh, Dave, do you use Venmo, PayPal? Uh, and if so, do you ask that they prepay? And what if the shoeing entails more than what the client might be expecting? That is a great question. I recently polled my clients and gave them all the options how they would like to pay. Uh, there's many ways to pay. You mentioned them all right there. Uh, I'll, I'll, when you're going to offer different ways for a client to pay, you also should include cash. Uh, some clients are going to come back to you and say, well, do I get a discount if I pay cash? I personally don't. I don't get any cash, but even before, it just doesn't do any good to give a cash discount. But we surveyed our clients and asked them how they would like to pay. As I said before, our clients are all on credit card information. And uh, I don't know whether it's, it's because I've had clients for a long time or they're older clients, whatever. But actually, I didn't have anyone want to change. They didn't want to do anything different than they are now. They like the system the way it's set up. Very simple for them. They know it's going on the credit card. They're emailed a, a, a receipt immediately. So no, I don't, I don't do PayPal. We certainly would. We have no problems accepting anything. But in our business, we only do credit card. When you're pulling clients, uh, you know, how, how do you determine you have a quorum or move ahead with something like offering different payments? Well, I, I did it in my newsletter. It's one of the concerns with uh, a, a couple younger barriers that was around that are, that are using other ways to accept money. And they were surprised when, uh, when they put some shoes on for me that they asked the client if they would pay a different way. And they were very surprised. The client said, no, I want to pay with a credit card directly to you. So I did it in my newsletter. I surveyed the clients. How would you like to pay? And I put in, I checked, you know, check the boxes, please. And, and email, just take a picture of the survey, send it right back to us. It was unanimous. They didn't want to change the way our system is working right now. So if uh, any of you, if you're not familiar with this newsletter process, uh, we've written about it a, a number of times. Dave uh, has done this as a presentation at the summit and uh, several of the other clinics uh, he's done. Uh, if you go to the American Farriers Journal website, uh, if you're an AAPF member, you get digital access to the magazine. But right now, too, to uh, help people offset uh, the cost of subscribing, we're offering uh, a free digital access uh, through the end of May. You just have to register on the site and look up and find that article and I think give some good advice for, for building one of these newsletters. 
so getting back to the, the idea of the newsletter again, uh, do you find there's a best time of year to introduce that or a best time of year to raise your rates on clients? I have had as many at one time, four newsletters per year, and we do two per year right now. And uh, we usually try to do that spring about this time, April or May, and then the other about six months later in the fall. I find it a little difficult to do at the end of the year in December. I've done it in December in the past. Uh, a lot going on in people's lives, a lot of school and all that. And as I said, I get a lot of response from my newsletters, and I know when I've done it in December in the past, I haven't got as much. So we've switched it up and do one now in the spring and one in the fall. I think spring is definitely the best time. Uh, you're coming out of a winter. You're coming out of Christmas. Uh, everyone is, is in full mode, and they can accept your changes. Uh, I think all farriers should adjust their prices every year to keep up with with the, the cost of living and, and uh, our, our equipment, our, our, all the products that it takes to do the business. So that's when everything is usually, all the, the in price increases and everything that we use is usually done by the end of April. So you, you know that your supplier's new catalog is out and their prices have increased. So that's the time you really need to let everybody know. If your clients understand that you're, it costs you more every year to shoe horses. I think spring, if you're going to do one newsletter, would be the best time. Someone kindly uh, sent me the link for that article. So it's uh, use a newsletter to educate your clients. Posted, it was from the November issue of, of American Farriers Journal back in 2018, if you have any of the older issues lying around, but a, a very good article by Dave. Okay, uh, another question. Do you use an accountant or bookkeeper? If so, how long and was there immediate benefit or did it take a while to realize the benefit? Well, I used a bookkeeper and an accountant both out of necessity years ago because I was uh, overwhelmed trying to do everything as farriers do. We try to, to shoot horses all day. We make our notes. We come home at night. Uh, we're too tired after we get a shower. We put it off until the end of the week. Um, and, and I actually worked for an accountant who was a very good accountant for doing veterinarians and, and farriers. And it was at his house late one day. And uh, he had to remind me that I had forgot to bill him for a horse or two the month before. So he said, you know, what you're losing in money, you can pay a good accountant to keep track of things for you. So out of necessity, and it was one of the best things I ever did, hiring an accountant and then uh, a bookkeeper uh, also, hands down, tax deductible was the best thing I ever done. So yes, I'd use both. Do you uh, delegate any other services like that out of your practice? I, I personally delegate everything that I can. <laughs> <laughs> if I have a crack, a quarter crack, I'm gonna call Tom Curl or I'm gonna call Ian. Um, I, I, I just, I, I wanna do what I do the best I can do it, and I have done it, but everything that I can do, I, that I can hire done, I, I look at what, what my profit is shoeing a horse. If I can hire somebody for $30 an hour and I can make $50 an hour shoeing a horse, I'm going to, because I love shoeing horses, I'm going to shoe and pay someone that does that specific job every day. I want that person to be the best they can be. I'm not the best at uh, cutting grass and uh, bailing hay, painting, 
not the best at it. Yeah. So I, I think we're going through a time now with, with this pandemic, we're really experiencing things we, we've never had before, but we've gone through tough times before. And uh, maybe looking back over your career, what do you think helps sustain your practice through tough economic times? Well, I, I think it goes back to the basics of, of business, all business, and that's uh, communication, communication with your clients, um, having good control of your cash flow. The people that I delegate to, my accountant and my bookkeeper, uh, they're, they're very good about staying on me as, as a farrier. I want to shoe horses, and sometimes I don't get the paperwork to them quick enough. But I, I think just the basics through the years, especially the communicating with clients, communicating with the clients and educating my clients, I think have done more for me than anything else. I let my clients know where I'm at, what I'm learning, what seminar I'm going to. Um, and, and they're happy with that. They understand. They, they, they plan around it. I have people to take care of it while I'm gone. I would say communication is the number one thing I would give credit to. Here's a perspective from Esco Buff, who's joining us tonight, another good mind for business. Esco says he raises his prices in January for cost of living and in June for business increases. And of course, as Dave stated, you should be raising your prices yearly. Going on to another question, do you charge a processing fee or is that built into your prices? It's built into my prices. I used to. Uh, we've been taking credit cards since the, the, the late 80s. And we used to charge that as a separate charge at the bottom. We always charged three and a half, four, four and a half percent. That got to be confusing. And I had clients ask me to just include it in the price because it is a cost of doing business. So it is built into the price of the shoeing job. Getting back to hiring an accountant or a bookkeeper, what are some good questions to ask someone you're interviewing before you hire them? For a bookkeeper? Yes to hire a bookkeeper. I, w I would want to hire a bookkeeper and an accountant that is a horse person. <laughs> that is my, that should be your number one priority. Somebody, there's, there's so many people in the equine industry that, that are involved in horses. And if you hire somebody that isn't, they're still gonna be a good accountant, but they're not gonna know the tax deductions that you need. Uh, our tax deductions are, are, the list is endless. And, and we should take advantage of all those. So in hiring an accountant or a bookkeeper, you really want to try to somebody that's involved some way in the equine industry. Looking at your practice today, you're uh, operating a multi-farrier practice. If someone's interested in, in looking to hire help, looking to establish a multi-farrier practice, where do you suggest they start? Well, the schools always have a top student. And there's, there's so many good schools right now who have those students. I, and that was, that's the first place I would suggest. However, it doesn't have to be somebody out of a school. The difficult thing with hiring somebody that hasn't been to a farrier school is that I personally believe they should attend a farrier school. So if, when you hire somebody that's not and they're very interested and they're a good worker and they have good work ethics, uh, they have no issues, no baggage, after you've trained this person, then you have to sacrifice um, six weeks to two years to send them to school. So I really think everybody should try to go through the schools to hire somebody. Ask, ask the instructors, who's, who's the, the go-getter? Who's the one that really wants it really, really bad? 
once they start with you, what, what do you establish with them in terms of expectations? Well, we start at the ground just like everybody else. Uh, but I have a list of terms that I make sure that they understand before they, they come with me. Most of the time, um, or if not 90% of the time, I'll ask somebody to ride with me and uh, I take care of their cost to get to me. And uh, I tell them they're going to be there three days. I'll cover the cost of them being there. And I'll let them know. Usually the first day we know whether it's, it's going to be a working relationship or not. But uh, we, we let them stay the three days. And, uh, but I do this for a lot of other farriers also. A lot of farriers will actually have me interview and work with somebody that is a potential uh, employee of theirs. They'll send them to us. My son's very much a go-getter. And uh, he has a way of doing things. And that person that we're looking at hiring or hiring for another farrier has to, has to be disciplined. They have to want it. They have to have a desire. And as, as you told me years ago, the broom tells. Broom yes. Tells you can tell a lot about a man, if not everything, or about a person by watching him sweep. We'll have to do that sometime, Jeremy. Okay. All right. Another question. Okay. Very specific for what we're doing with COVID-19. Uh, what measures have you taken with the barns you work at to make sure you're adhering to their policies of distancing and as well as that they're adopting your own? I, I'm very fortunate. I only had a couple barns that asked us to wear, you know, gloves and masks at the beginning, but we also sent out a, a newsletter and an email uh, telling everybody that we really didn't want anybody around. We wanted our shoeing area to be free, open, and clear. Only one person to bring us horses and take them back. And that went very, very smooth. There was no issues at all. Even when it comes to getting into some of our barns, which are gated, we wore gloves to punch the buttons to get in the gate because it was like opening a, a handle to a restroom, you know. So we, we really didn't have any issues with that whatsoever. We, we had good relationship with the clients and both what I uh, emailed them and asked them and what they asked me was very, very similar. They did. I did have three clients that I usually take farriers with me to their barns. I have a lot of ride-alongs. Uh, this is probably our last year we're doing the ride-alongs. They did ask me if I would uh, only bring my, my son, myself and, and Kevin or whoever was working with me. They didn't want any ride-alongs. So, I, I found that was uh, quite sad. It broke my heart to have to call some people and tell them they couldn't come, but they understood. What advice do you have for the farriers who are, are working alone, you know, and, and clients may not want to be around them in, in this time or, or may not be at the, the barn at all in terms of keeping themselves safe from, you know, anything can happen with a horse, a floating plastic bag or a cat jumps out of the loft and spooks the horse and, Next thing you know, yeah. you're laid up with an injury. Yeah, it's a sad situation. When you're a sole proprietor, uh, you should already know which horses you work on that are insured. If you're working on your own and you're working on an insured horse, uh, once you take, once you put that halter on that horse and you lead it out of that stall, uh, I've always been told that you are in care, custody, and control of that horse and responsible for anything that happens. That's a tough situation, very tough. I find it even tougher for some of the guys and girls that have to go get them out of the pasture and catch them. These are times when you really need to look at your business and evaluate if this is a tough time. If, if your books are full and you haven't lost any business because of this, this is the time for you to reevaluate your business and say, 
how much time is it really taking me every day to go get my own horses or to catch them out of the pasture? How much time am I really losing? No different than counting your windshield time. If you're driving 200 miles and, and you're doing a whole day of work, but you're not getting anything to drive those miles, it's, it's the same. This, this crisis is going to bring a lot of uh, cream to the top with some customers, and some are going to go by the, by the bottom of the jar. What are some resources you like to use to, to learn a bit more on business? Oh, there's so many good resources. I, I give a lot of credit to the Small Business Association and the SBA sites. There's so much information that you can get out there. But as far as a, a, a farrier-type business, I, I, I got to say hats off to you guys. You have so much information and so much archived. It's very simple to find that, to, to go to the search on the AFJ and, and type that in. I think the, the basics of business of farriery is right there. As far as running your business financially, uh, get involved with your local small business association or your community uh, and, and start there. Well, I thank you for the plug. Uh, but it, uh, we just had an article on that with uh, the SBA and uh, some of the resources that you can find on there. And actually, they're putting out a lot of good advice now. And uh, that's, uh, I think you can get there by sba.gov. So very easy to find the Small Business Administration. Okay, uh, regarding your interns, how do you determine what you're going to pay them? Well, again, that starts when you first hire them, that you have to have a base pay uh, that you would pay anybody. They have to have a, a certain amount of money wherever you live. If you're going to hire uh, an, an intern or an associate and you live in Brewster, New York, the cost of living there in Wellington, Florida is going to be astronomical. So you have to understand that you need to pay them enough that they have to survive. Okay. Yes. You're giving a lot of education to them, but they have to have a base pay. After that, as they move up the ladder, uh, they have that pay scale has to be adjusted and it has to be adjusted quite well. I, I really believe if you just take a minute to think that Anybody that can pull and clinch for you can help you shoe one more horse a day in the same amount of time. So whatever you're charging your farrier cost, and you're, let's say you're working eight hours a day and you're doing five horses on your own and you hire a farrier, an associate, and you're going to start doing seven or eight horses, uh, I really think they're justified to, to at least be paid the cost of one horse a day. So that's something, that's a base pay for you to think of. Once they get to pulling and clinching and they're setting your truck up and they're giving you ample time to talk to your clients, to watch your horses walk up and walk away, uh, you're going home in the same amount of hours a day, you're doing an extra horse. That extra horse, I think, should be a good cost for somebody as they move up the ladder. Okay. Uh, what's a mistake that you made in your career that, that was holding you back and once you turned it around, uh, really helped you accelerate? Oh, I've made more mistakes than I can count. <laughs> I could write a book on mistakes. <laughs> Probably the biggest mistake was just shooing too many horses and not focusing on the business part uh, as well as the communication. When, when we start off and, and we're struggling, all we want is more horses because that's more money. Uh, once we start doing way too many horses, we're also showing up at nine o'clock at night. It's hard to get a shower and get something to eat. Um, 
we get we get caught in that. Fairies get caught in their own practices. So I would say that was the number one fault of mine was shooing too many horses for too long and not being business smart. Uh, getting back to clients, and you talked about establishing expectations with them. Uh, do you have a way of vetting someone before you let them join your practice? A client mm -hmm. joining? I'm very fortunate that we really haven't taken on any new clients for years. Years ago, I started, I had so much business, I couldn't keep up with it. And I actually had people that would approach me and I used to tell them, oh, I just can't get to you, you know, go, go see so-and-so. I decided I would start uh, because of, I had a business mentor that suggested that I start a list. And uh, it was a client list, a client waiting list. So years ago, I started a client waiting list. So somebody would approach me and say, can you shoe my horses? And I would say, I would love to. I would love to have you as a client. Unfortunately, I'm very, very busy. But if somebody drops off, I've got one or two ahead of you, but I would be happy to contact you. Those clients continue to contact, and that's what has happened through the years. That's how my business has evolved is somebody drops off. Uh, sure, some of them, I find them other farriers, and they're happy with them. But that's how I've done it through the years is I have a client waiting list. When you do a referral, how do you uh, determine who you're going to send it to? How do you, I guess, make sure that it will be a good relationship between the client and the farrier you're referring to? Well, I've been lucky with so many ride-alongs through the years, uh, other associates, other farriers that I've worked with through the years that went out into their own businesses, as well as being involved with the AAPF, IAPF, that I'm pretty fortunate to know farriers everywhere, and as well as their, their type of discipline that they do. Uh, and also, I, I visit a lot of those other farriers in different areas when I'm traveling as a gypsy going to horse shows during the summer. So I pretty much know somebody in every area where, the, where the, the client lives or close to the client. And it's very simple for me and very easy for me to pick up the phone and say, hey, John, would you be willing to take on another 12 horses? Uh, they're only 15 miles from you. So I don't have a, a problem struggling with that, I think. And now with the Internet, I, I actually see a lot of people get on there and say, hey, I've got a client moving to Pueblo, Colorado, who's a who's able to take those clients on. This is a jumper and he has bad hawks. Can you do that? So, but personally myself, I know, I know a lot of farriers everywhere and I love to, to send business uh, to people that I know or that are association members. Okay. Uh, here's a question we had and uh, I'd like to get your perspective on it. It was one that came up last week with uh, Shane Westman and Alex Garcia. We had those two California farriers on here. Uh, communication's great. And a lot of what you're, preaching tonight is establishing good communication with clients. What about establishing some boundaries with that and, uh, uh, you know, setting your hours? Uh, what advice do you have for setting boundaries with clients so, you know, they're not texting you all hours of the night? Uh, again, that's very simple to do in, in the newsletter. Very, very simple to do. I have a message that's on all the time and I'll usually take calls, but I express this in, in my newsletters. Uh, I, I answer my phone all day long. Evening time is my time, usually after 6.30, 7 o'clock. If you leave a message, if you have an emergency, then please text me. So I, I separate the calls that may come in. Oh, I've got a new horse coming in. Can you look at it to an emergency? Now, if I get a text that's an emergency, then that's, that is an emergency, and we deal with that. 
uh, on the spot. No, no questions to it. Okay. Uh, what's your opinion of apprenticeships for people who live in your area? Aren't you, aren't you training your competition? Yes. And I love training my competition. I have no problem with that at all. I, I think there's plenty of space for farriers. I think there's a, a, a great need for farriers. Uh, when I'm training somebody, I'm training them at the same mindset that I am. Um, and my clients, when I'm training somebody, will accept them for their level that they are. But I don't believe you can train experience into an apprentice or an associate. I believe they can go on and do the skills that you've taught them, but you can never teach experience. So I've, I've kind of educated my clients through the years that because I have over 40 or 50 years experience to draw from, the person I'm sending you has skills and, and a certain skill level, but he doesn't have that experience. He will get it or they will get it in time but you can't teach experience. So I'm never afraid of that. I don't, I, I've never had an issue with that. And I think if you treat an associate fairly or an apprentice or whatever you want to call them, I think if you treat them fairly and you pay them well, my problem is getting rid of them. They don't want to leave our business. They don't want to leave our practice. They like the business. They like what they're being paid. Uh, they don't, they know what the stress is in my business. I have a stress level that's very high. And they just don't want to leave. So it's, it's sometimes I have to kind of boot them out and, and actually help them find some clients or give them some clients to get them to leave. Yeah, I remember our friend, the late Red Wrench, and he had the same struggle with his practice here in Wisconsin and uh, to not deal with those headaches and allow him to deal with them. It was enough to keep a lot of people in his practice. Yes. Yeah. And all right, so we've talked a little bit about establishing a multi-farrier practice, very successful levels of managing clients. Let's talk about the, the more entry-level farrier and, and moving to a new location, trying to establish a business. What, what advice do you have for finding clients when you're not a well-known entity? Well, I, I strongly suggest trying to hook up with a farrier in your local area right off the bat. But I also strongly suggest that a, a new farrier that's in a new geographical area or just starting off in the business, uh, that person should uh, approach every equine veterinarian in the area. And I've taught through the years that take the skill that you have, take old horseshoes and make hoof picks out of those. And put the veterinarian's name and the veterinarian's telephone number on there flip it over, the other side, put your name and your telephone number, make it very, very shiny or paint it gold. Uh, that way they'll, if they don't use it in their truck, they'll use it as a paperweight, but ask to have a meeting with them, go in and sit down, ask to buy them a coffee or a breakfast and say, I'm just, I'm here, I'm just starting off. Uh, I would love to work with you. I made you this hoof pick as a, as a gift. Maybe you'll, you'll remember me and pass on a client. And it's, it works. That really, really works. They'll know automatically if you have the skill to make a hoof pick out of a shoe, that that's a certain amount of skill for you to start with. Um, I think that, you know, again, we're getting back to communication, getting out there, reaching out, putting out your name, finding new ways to communicate with people, whether it's, it's making that hoof pick or uh, if you're more established in your practice, creating that newsletter. Yes. 
Okay, so as a final question, uh, outside of communication, what, what's one thing that a farrier could change tomorrow to improve their practice? Uh, education, uh, continuing your education. It's, it's most important, no, not only for the client, but for the horse. There's so many good things happening right now and, and the industry is changing. The education that we're getting from research that's going on right now, what the horses are, are doing themselves and where they're working, uh, continue your education. I can't put enough emphasis on that. And that's the thing a, a lot of young people struggle with. They don't have the time. They've just got a business. They think they, they don't have or can't take the time. The business can't, uh, can't lose that cash flow. In reality, you can't afford not to continue your education. You really, that, that maybe is more important than the communication because if you're continuing your education, you'll learn the communication skills. Yeah, we were talking about the Small Business Administration a little while ago and that they said among the top mistakes you can make in any business during tough financial times is to cut uh, your, your development, to cut your professional training. So, uh, but thankfully there's resources like this that are free and I, I hope everybody found it valuable. But a uh, reason we're able to do is for, for because of the knowledge that people like Dave can bring. And uh, unfortunately, David Barron uh, had a family emergency we found that out at, you know, about four hours ago. And first person I called was Dave and graciously gave up his time. And I think that's, that's just indicative of this industry. And if you are struggling, uh, don't be afraid to pick up a phone and, and reach out to farriers in your community. I think you'll, you'll find many people ready at, at, uh, at the willing to help you. So thank you, Dave, for helping us out tonight. Thank you for asking me. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you again to Dave. I hope everyone out there stays healthy and safe and look forward to seeing you here again next week. Good night. Mm -hmm.